Some time ago, I was watching one of those banal TV game shows. And in this particular instance, there was a, a, a panel of celebrities, and they were asked really difficult questions. They would give an answer. They would make something up. And then the contestants, they had to judge whether the answer given was correct or incorrect. So there, there was a question, a hilarious question that, that was asked. I'll never forget the answer to it was posed as a complete this sentence, and it was asked of a celebrity who happened to be a comedian. So the complete this sentence went like this. If attacked by a, by a shark, you should put your head under the water and... Okay? If attacked by a shark, you should put your head under the water and... And the celebrity immediately replied, and kiss yourself goodbye. <laughs> that good answer. Good. Does anybody know the correct answer to that at a regionals or in St. Charles? What's the correct answer? Put your head under the water and punch him in the nose? A shark? The answer was scream, which is probably as good as punching him in the nose, right? I mean, like, what's a shark going to do? Oh, don't. I I don't know. And I hope none of you ever have to put this information to the test. I hope you're never attacked by a shark. But the fact of the matter is we all face adversities, hardships, attacks, if you would, uh, frequently in our lives, don't we? You know, one of the downsides of being a pastor of a church as large as Christ Community Church is that a week doesn't go by that I don't hear tales of heartbreaking crises going on in people's lives. You know, somebody who lost a job or, or who's been out of work for months, a home that's been destroyed by alcoholism, a pregnant mom who experiences a miscarriage, a suicide attempt of a high school student, the breakup of an engagement, A doctor's report of cancer, the stress of a difficult marriage, the burden of ever-increasing debt, tough situations. You you may be going through a tough situation right now in your life. They, They say there are three kinds of people in this world, those who are in tough situations, those who've just come out of tough situations, and those about to go into into tough situations. So what do you do? Well, there's a saying out there a saying that some attribute to Joe Kennedy, the father of JFK, and others say, no, it came from the college football legend Newt Rockney. When the going gets tough, what? The tough get going. Great advice. Easier said than done. How in the world do you do it? When the going gets tough, how do you get going? Well, we're going to take a look at what James has to say about that. We're working our way through the epistle of James in the New Testament. If you brought a Bible, would you turn with me to James chapter 5? This is the 11th installment of a 12-week series, so the horse sees the barn. We're almost home. Okay, now, if you've been here for the course of the series, you know all the way back when we began at the very first installment, James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, James had been talking about tough times, trials, the testing of our faith. And now here we come toward the end of the epistle, and he's talking about the same topic. Okay, evidently James understands something about tough times, namely that they're routine, they're regular. They, they hit our lives all the time. So what I'd like to do is begin by reading today's text in its entirety. This is James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. And before I read it, I just want to point out a couple of key words to look for. Okay, I tell you this all the time, that you you ought to look, one of the observations you ought to make when you're reading any passage of the Bible is look for repeating words or ideas, okay? Look for repeating words or ideas. So just look for repeating words or ideas. What what should you do? (laughs) 
You guys are so sharp. Look for repeating words. Now, there are a number of them in this passage. There are only two I want to draw your attention to because they underscore the theme of of the passage we're looking at. Okay, the first one I want you to keep your eyes open for is the word patient or patiently, or patience, pops up four times in these verses. In the original Greek text, it's a compound Greek word. It it is the word makrothymeo, makrothymeo. Macro, you could probably guess this. Macro means long or big, and thymeo means to endure hardship, adversity, to suffer. So the patient person is is the person who goes through long periods of trial, adversity, tough times, but hangs in there, doesn't give up, doesn't throw in the towel, doesn't curl up in a fetal position and suck their thumb, doesn't throw a pity party. This is the person who, when the going gets tough, they keep going and going and going and going and going and going. So that's the first word. Look for Macrothemel, look for patience as I read this. The second word is, is very similar in meaning to patience. It's the word persevered or perseverance. You'll see that twice, both times in verse 11. Another compound word in the Greek, hypomeno. Hypomeno, hypo means under, it's a preposition. Meno means to re- remain, it's a verb, or to stand firm. So the persevering person is the person who, who stands under, remains firm under the stress of difficult times. Once again, it's the person who, when life hits the fan, they don't get blown over. So keep your eyes open for patience and for uh, perseverance in this text. Verse 7, let me read it to you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. By the way, brothers and sisters is another repeating expression in this passage. James uses this all the time in his epistle, but hasn't used it for a whole chapter. See, for the past chapter, he's been banging us up the side of the head with a two-by-four, saying tough stuff. And now he, he wants to say encouraging stuff, tough times, here's my encouragement to you. And so he goes back to brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. So don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who've persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord's full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. All right, this is our text for the day. I'm going to give you four directives. If you're going through tough times, this is what you want to do. Let me encourage you to put these on a three-by-five card. I said this back when we did chapter one. Because tough times are so prevalent in our lives, you need this advice handy, I said. So write the four directives I gave you for chapter one on a three-by-five card. Now we're in chapter five, I'm saying the same thing. Write these four directives down. You're going to need these. And if you you kept the three-by-five card from chapter one, you could just turn it over and write these on the back side. Four directives, number one. When the going gets tough, number one, remind yourself of Christ's return. Remind yourself of Christ's return. Now, Christ's return is another one of those repeating words in today's passage, 
Look at the opening couple of verses. Verse 7, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Go down one verse, verse 8, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. You know, I I surrendered my life. I became a wholehearted follower of Jesus back in the mid-1970s. And the Jesus movement was sweeping the country at the time. And and one of the emphases of this movement was a focus on the second coming of Christ. Now, there was a guy who kind of kicked things into high gear at the beginning of the decade in 1970. Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. It was all about Bible prophecy and Jesus' return. It became a bestseller, eventually sold over 28 million copies. The New York Times calls it the most influential nonfiction book of that era, the 1970s decade. And so we were all focused, all of us who were following Jesus on his return. I could remember going to church back then. It seemed like half the sermons were on the Lord's return. Jesus is coming coming back. We're all going to go to heaven, spend eternity with him. But one of the byproducts, unfortunately, of that sort of an emphasis is that, that we were so focused on Jesus coming and getting to heaven that we forgot about making a difference in this world. This series in James is all about faith that makes a difference, right? We weren't making a difference. In fact, someone quipped back then that a bunch of Christ followers were so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good. Now, that was the 1970s. What's happened since? Well, from my observation, I, I think people's perspective has changed. I think the pendulum has gone from one extreme to the opposite extreme among Christ followers. I think most Christ followers today are caught up in the here and now. I I, I think most of us rarely think about Christ's return. And one of the dangers of that short-term perspective, now listen, is that it doesn't really help us when we're facing tough times. See, we're going to experience in this world hardships that are painful, that are oftentimes unfair, that are discouraging, that are overwhelming, that are, are quite frankly scary from time to time, confusing. And those hardships, they don't always go away. They don't always get fixed in this life. So if our only frame of reference is the here and now, then tough times are going to devastate us. And it doesn't matter whether they're big tough times or they're you know, relatively small, tough times, they're going to upend us. We're going to find it difficult to know what to do. You know, it doesn't matter if you, you lost your health to cancer or you, you know, you lost a sale at work. It does, doesn't matter if your marriage is crashing about you or your computer just crashed. Big or small, you're going to find it difficult to face daily trials if you don't have a long-term perspective, the perspective of Christ's return. See, James Remedy Remedy to tough times is to get your eyes off the immediate problem and look to the horizon. Remind yourself of Christ's return. Now, there are two very important aspects of Christ's return that James touches upon in these verses. The first is Christ's presence. Okay, when he comes, it means that he's come to abide with us. James refers to the Lord's coming. Look at verse 7. And then he says the Lord's coming, again in verse 8, this word coming, it's another compound Greek word, the word is parousia, para means alongside of or close to or near, 
And usia comes from the Greek verb to be. So when Jesus returns, he's coming to be with us, to be near. We're going to see him face to face. We're going to be in his presence forever. We're going to be in his presence forever. James is now. That will get you through tough times. You know, about 20 years ago, I took my uh, first Christ Community Church Go Team trip. I had done other mission trips growing up, but uh, this was my first one as a representative, as the, the pastor of Christ Community. I went to hang out with our partner at the time in Romania. And this was in the 1990s. Uh, the dictator, cruel dictator Ceausescu had just fallen, so it was still pretty much a communist country. There was a very oppressive feel there. I stayed for two weeks. The second week, I got deathly sick. In fact, they, they put me in bed, and I was in bed for several days, only getting up to bolt to the bathroom and worship at the porcelain altar. It was, it was rough. And then th- this lasted, this sickness lasted right up to the time I was going to depart. So they hauled me out of bed, and they literally carried me to the airport. And we walked into the terminal for Tarome Airlines, the unfriendly skies of Romania. You never, just a word of advice, you never want to fly on a communist airlines, okay? So we, we walk in, and there's, there's no electronic equipment in the place. Everybody's working off of a, a yellow legal pad, and we quickly discovered that they have a habit of overbooking every flight, that they've got enough seats for about half the people that are in the terminal. And the next flight doesn't fly for like three or four days. Oh, my goodness. So I'm being propped up by two Romanian friends of mine, one on my right and one on my left, and they're literally holding me up. And there's one thought that's getting me through. Now, this is kind of sappy, okay? I'll just admit it ahead of time. Here's the thought. I'm thinking, if I can just get home, I'm going to see Sue. Yeah, pretty good, huh? If I could just, if I could just get home, I told you it was sappy. I'm going to see my wife. I'm going to see her smile. She's going to be at O'Hare waiting for me. What James is saying here is if you've got Christ and you're looking forward to his return and you're facing a tough time, remind yourself, Jesus is coming back. I'm going to be in his presence forever. It puts everything in perspective. Instead of being bolted to the here and now, you're looking long term. It doesn't matter whether you're stuck in traffic or you're facing some enormous problem. Christ is coming, coming back. That's what matters. Christ's presence. Just a side note here, real important side note, and that is you're not going to enjoy Christ's presence unless you surrender to him in this life as Savior, King of your life. Okay, when, when, when the day comes of his return or the day comes when you pass away and stand in his presence, if you've not yielded your life to him, surrendered to him, he, he's not your savior, not your king. You don't enjoy his presence for forever. And if you're unsure how to do this, how to begin a relationship with Christ, how to know that you belong to him and he belongs to you, oh, I would encourage you at any one of our four campuses, when the service is over, make your way to the Welcome Center. Say to somebody there, okay, how do, you, how do you do this? How do you begin a relationship with Jesus? You know, we, we've seen hundreds of people, thousands of people over the years begin a relationship with Christ in one of our welcome centers. So do it today. Now, there's a second aspect to his return besides his presence, I want to note, and that is his reward, that when he comes, he brings reward with him. And we pick that up from the second half of verse 7. Okay, James uses farmers... As an example of people who know how to hang tough, 
He says in, in, in verse 7, second part, the farmer waits for the, the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. Now, James lived in the sweltering, hot, bone-dry Middle East. And farmers there depended on rains twice a year. You had to have the autumn rains. Okay, by the way, their harvest season is the reverse of ours. So you needed these severe thunderstorms that came in autumn, pounded the ground, made it plowable so that it would accept seed. And then later on in spring, you were dependent on these steady, slowly, gently falling rains, these showers that would water the maturing crops. And so the farmers waited for the rains. They waited for the rains. They hung tough when there was no rain. They believed God was going to bring the rain. What kept them going? Anticipation. You know, what they were anticipating, look look at verse 7 again, they were looking forward to the valuable crop. They knew if they hung in there, there was a harvest to come. James is telling us that if if we face our tough times in a God-honoring way, there's going to be a harvest. God is richly going to richly reward us one day. Now, let me clarify, that may not be in this life. You know, that, that, that may require that we wait until Christ's return, but when he returns, there will be a significant reward. James says, keep focused on that. Now, I love the story of the two farmers. Uh, one was a Christ follower. One was a skeptic, didn't believe. And they're, they're, they worked side by side, neighboring farms. And uh, one day the unbeliever said to his Christ-following farmer friend, he said, I didn't see your, you in your fields yesterday. Are, are you okay? And the believing farmer said, oh, it's, everything's cool. It's just, it was Sunday. And on Sunday we go off to church. We don't work on Sundays. Uh, we like to worship as a family. That's a priority of ours. And the unbeliever looked at him and he shook his head and he said, you're not going to succeed at farming doing that. You know, especially during harvest season, it's seven days a week. You got to work. In fact, let's let's just see. Let's see who fares better in a couple of weeks when we're at the grain elevator side by side. Who's had the bigger harvest? So, a couple weeks later, they meet up at the grain elevator. Guess who had the bigger harvest? Who do you think? The Christ follower. You're wrong. It was the unbeliever because he'd been working seven out of seven days. And he pointed that out to the Christ follower. He said, well, look who's got the bigger, bigger harvest. And the Christ follower just smiled and he said, yeah, but this isn't the final harvest. Big difference. See, sometimes in the, in the midst of our trials, you know, we're, we're tempted to throw in the towel because the reward is not, it's not immediately apparent. There, there's coming a harvest It may not be right around the corner, but if you'll focus on Christ's return, if you'll really believe from your heart that he brings a reward with with him for those who have navigated tough times in a God-honoring way, it'll give you hope. Sometimes the very reason we're facing tough times is that we've been trying to walk in obedience to God, right? Like the farmer who said, I'm going to work six out of seven days because the seventh day I'm going to make a priority out of worship. And so his crop was a little bit smaller than the other guys. You know, when our efforts are not immediately rewarded, it's tempting for us to, to conclude, well, forget this approach. You know, it doesn't pay to obey God in this situation, so I'm just going to do what feels good. Let me give you an example of this. Okay, you're single. You're dating somebody. 
And you're, you're doing your best to walk in sexual purity. You know what God's word says. You, you know that a sexual relationship is reserved for a marriage commitment. Anything outside the boundaries of that, God's word says, it's off limits. But this is tough to do. I mean, especially in our culture, right? Where everybody, every one of our friends who's dating is sleeping together. Every movie we go to with a romantic theme shows a couple getting in bed together. You know, our, our bodies crave that kind of sexual Im- intimacy. So what keeps us walking in sexual purity? It's the knowledge that a reward is coming, that there's a final harvest, that, that when God is honored by the way we handle our tough times, whether those tough times are brought on by our obedience to God's word or they're just the result of living in a fallen world, when we honor God by the way we handle our tough times, there is a reward in store. You get it? Good. Hang on to the thought of Christ's return, his abiding presence, his reward. Number two, refrain from grumbling against others. Go back to the text. We looked at 7 and 8. Pick it up at verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Have you ever noticed that tough times tend to make us irritable? You know, when we become exasperated with our circumstances, it's easy to take out our frustration on others. We complain. We become critical. Some of us erupt like volcanoes. We nag. We blame. We scold. It's often the people closest to us who are on the receiving end of our venting, right? Yeah, right. So dad loses a big account at work, and he comes home. What does he do? criticizes mom's dinner. So what does mom do? She reams out her high school son because he got a B on a chemistry test. He thought that was pretty good. What does he do? He goes to his little sister and he teases her mercilessly. What does she do? She kicks the dog. (laughs) The dog chases the cat and the cat jumps in dad's lap and scratches him and the cycle starts over again. This is what grumbling does. Do you know that the Bible takes grumbling very seriously? I mean, we we tend to look at our complaining as everybody does it. That's just kind of standard operating procedure, right? God's word comes down on grumbling pretty hard. I mean, this is one of the themes of the Old Testament book of Numbers. I encourage you to read it sometime. Uh, the, The book traces the journey of God's Old Testament people from bondage in Egypt all the way to the promised land, through the wilderness, So you would think that they would be elated along the way. They have just left 430 years of slavery, and they're about to inherit a homeland of their own freedom, everybody with their own little house and a garden in the backyard, and so on. You would think that they would be elated, but no, they grumbled every step of the way. They grumbled about the lack of food and water. They grumbled about the enemy armies that occasionally ambushed them, even though God protected them every step of the way. They grumbled against Moses' leadership. And one day, three guys arrived on Moses' doorstep to grumble about his brother Aaron. See, Aaron was the worship leader for Israel, appointed by God to that post. He offered sacrifices at the worship center and burned incense to God in, in worship and so on. And one day, three guys, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, show up at Moses' tent and say, hey, how, come, how come Aaron gets to do all this? I mean, what about us? Like, you guys think you're such hot stuff. You and Aaron, you and Aaron. Eh? We, we could burn 
incense. It can't be that difficult to do, can it? So Moses says, okay, here's what we're going to do. This is Numbers 22. You've got to read it on your own sometime. Moses says, here's what we're going to do. Tomorrow, you guys bring some incense. Aaron will bring some incense. You'll, you'll all offer it to God, and we'll see which offering God accepts. Now, how many do you know, how many of you know that these guys were absolute idiots not to start waking up and smelling the coffee at this point, recognizing that when Moses said, we'll let God decide, this is not a good thing. This is not going to go down well. But the next day, these three dudes, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, show up with their incense. They show up with a horde of, of supporters. Everybody wants to see the showdown. I mean, there's, there are no movies or nighttime entertainment in the wilderness. So it, this is going to be showdown at the OK Corral. So everyone's there to see what happens. And the first thing out of Moses' mouth is this. He says to the crowd who's gathered, he says, OK, everybody step back from Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. You know, I would have been booking it out of there so fast. Step back, yeah, like how far back do you want me to be? What happens next is that the ground begins to tremble, rumble, and that it opens up and an earthquake swallows these three guys and their families. End of the grumbling, right? No, actually, the next day the people grumbled that Moses had brought on an earthquake. Honest to goodness. You read this and you're saying to yourself, really, folks? I mean, don't, don't go there. And sure enough, a plague breaks out against these people, and Moses falls on his face before God and says, Oh, God, I know they've been stupid, but spare them. And by the time God spares them, almost 15,000 people have died. God, God takes grumbling real seriously. He, he's, he's, he's not a fan of it. You know, when we grumble... When we find ourselves in tough times, attempt us to turn our guns on God, turn our guns on others. God meets that grumbling with severe discipline. And, and if, you, if you think I'm overstating God's response to grumbling, just look again at verse 9, the second half of the verse. You grumble, you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. When tough times come, it's a good idea to turn to God, to turn to others. It's not a good idea to turn on them. And, and let me suggest there are two truths about God that you'll find throughout Scripture that are good to call to mind in difficult situations so you won't grumble. Two truths about God. The first truth is that God is in control. He's sovereign. The second truth is that God wants what's best for me. Okay, God is in control God wants what's best for me. God is in control. God wants what's best for me. You've got to hold those two truths in tandem. If you believe one of them but not the other, you're still going to be in trouble. If you believe that God is in control, he's all-powerful, but he doesn't have my best interests in mind, he doesn't really care, I'm in a storm of life and he won't even give me an umbrella, if that's how you feel, you're not going to be helped. If you hold on to the second truth that God cares about me deeply, he wants what's best, but he's really not sovereign, he's not in control. I mean, he's a loving God, but he's kind of inept at times. That's not going to help you. This needs to become our mantra in difficult times. doesn't matter whether it's a small, difficult time, whether it's a big, difficult time. God is in control. God wants what's best for me. God is in control. God wants what's best for me. Say it with me. God is in control. God wants what's best for me. And that'll keep you from grumbling. That'll keep you from saying, oh, this is a horrible... Well, no, it's not horrible. God's in control, and he wants my best. 
Number three, the third directive that James gives us, reflect on positive role models of perseverance. Okay, when the going gets tough, look around for some role models, people who've persevered. Pick it up at verse 10. James says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who've persevered. Uh, You've heard of Job's perseverance. You've seen what the Lord finally brought about. Well, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Okay, the key word in these two verses is the word example in the middle of verse 10. So circle it in your Bible. One Bible scholar defines this word as someone who spurs others to imitation. Okay, we're, we're, we're talking about a role model. James tells us to look for role models, especially in this matter of persevering through tough times. And he gives us two illustrations of what he's talking about in these verses. First of all, he says, consider the prophets. I mean, these are guys who were determined to do God's will, even when life hit the fan. A friend of mine told me this past week, he said, I just started reading through Jeremiah. I say, oh, like my favorite prophet of the Old Testament. There's more biographical information on Jeremiah than any other Old Testament prophet. And what you'll, you'll discover about this guy is that he went through difficult time after difficult time after difficult time and remained faithful to God throughout. So look at the prophets, James says. Oh, you want a second example of perseverance, a role model to look to? Consider Job. Now, many of you know Job's story. You know that he lost everything. You know that he lost all his flocks and his herds, that he lost his employees. Bandits came and carried people off. You know that a tent fell on his children and snuffed out their lives. They were all killed. You know that he lost his health. His body was covered with boils, and he used a piece of pottery to scrape the itchy, sore stuff. But the only thing he didn't lose was his wife, which was too bad, because she was a headache. She really was. So here's this guy who lost everything. Was he a role model of perseverance? Well, if you know the story, initially he was, had this ginormous faith in God. He's the guy who who said, naked I came from the tomb. I guess I'm going out naked. God gives, sometimes he takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. But keep reading the story. As the tough times continue, Job begins to whine. Job becomes so depressed he wants to commit suicide. In fact, he says, forget suicide. It'd be better if I'd never even been born in the first place. Job begins to complain that that God is messing up. He's not doing his job. You say, and this is a role model of perseverance? Bible scholars would say, yeah, it's, it's a realistic role model. See, James wasn't perfect. James didn't sail through turbulent waters as if they were no big deal. James had some really, really, really bad days. However, and this is a really important however, Job remained loyal to God. I mean, no, it wasn't always pretty, but he never abandoned his faith. And if you, you, you never read the story, you should read it for yourself. When you come to the end of the book of Job, you discover that he was eventually rewarded by the Lord, who, as James says here at the end of verse 11, is full of compassion and mercy. You know, whatever the area of life in which you experience tough times, find somebody who has successfully navigated a similar storm 
and go to school on them. See, it doesn't matter whether it's somebody who successfully processed the losing of a boyfriend or someone who successfully processed the losing of a job. Go to school on someone who's persevered in a God-honoring way. Say, you know, what did you learn? How, how, how can I learn what you learned? Point me in the right direction. You know, whether this is a Christian friend, whether this is a, a member of your community group, which is why you need to be in a community group, you need others who are following Christ, some of whom are going to have experienced what you're now going through, and they could point the way to how to navigate this storm. You know, th- this is why you want to come on a, a Tuesday night to our care night. Let me say to the regional campuses, we host this every Tuesday night at the St. Charles campus, but it's open to all our regional campuses. This is where, whether you're working through an addiction or you're going through grief because of the loss of a loved one or you're making career transitions or, or whatever, any tough time you can think of, we'll help care for you at Care Night and point you in the same direction, in the right God-honoring direction. Or it may be picking up a book on the topic of the storm of life you're, you're facing, written by a godly, wise Christian leader. That's what's gotten th- me through many storms of my life. I'm a reader. In fact, what I'd like to do right now, just for a minute here, I'd like to scroll through five or six books, book titles. Give you book titles for different storms of life. Jot these down. If you don't need them now, you might need them in the future. And if you don't need them, somebody else in your life probably does. So consider purchasing one of these books and passing it on. Are you grieving over a lost loved one? James Means lost his wife to cancer, and his book, A Tearful Celebration, is brief, but oh, is it powerful. In fact, my friend who lost his wife to cancer is a book reader, read a bunch of books at the time of his wife's death, said this book, James Means' book, A Tearful Celebration, best thing he read. Are, are you struggling with sexual purity? I mean, may, maybe your tough time is the result of your attempt to walk in sexual purity. Maybe it's even a same-sex attraction. And if that's the case, I'd recommend the book of Wesley Hill, Washed and Waiting, probably the most honest, vulnerable book I've read on the topic. Because Wesley freely admits that this is his struggle, same-sex attraction, and yet he's committed to living a God-honoring life, to saying no to, to homosexual behaviors because he, he knows God's word says no. And that's not easy to do, especially in our culture. Washed and waiting by Wesley Hill. You're struggling with debt, money problems. Dave Ramsey, who wrote the material for Financial Peace University that we use around Christ Community Church. Dave Ramsey, don't know if you, you know this, he's a, he's a radio talk show host, he's an author. When he was 26 years old, he had $4 million in the bank from real estate sales. Very successful. Then he lost everything. He lost every penny because of of poor financial stewardship, bad business practices. So he went to God's Word and tried to learn everything he could about money management from Scripture. And God turned his life around. And if you want to read some good stuff about getting out of debt, read his Total Money Makeover or his uh, newest book, Entre Leadership. Are you in constant physical pain? Read anything by Johnny Erickson Tata. She's one of my heroes. You know, Johnny Erickson Tata, for several decades now, has been a quadriplegic. As a teenager, dove into a lake and broke her neck. And this is a woman who's written three or four books on how to navigate the storms of physical suffering. Go online, look her up, find a speech that she's given at some public affair. It will move you. 
It will give you so much strength. Go to school on Johnny. Are you disheartened by a son or a daughter who's making rebellious choices? Do you have a prodigal in your family? Jim and Carol Simbola's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, tells the story of their daughter who wandered far from home, far from God, and how they dealt with it. Okay, these are just some of the kinds of storms that we're going to face. These are book, books to put in your beach bag this summer. And I have to say, you know, especially because it's Father's Day, I have to say that the most influential role model in my life when it comes to perseverance has been my dad. You know, if I were asked to describe my dad in one word, the word would be resilience. Immediately comes to my mind. Resilience. You know, over decades of life, I've watched my dad go through every imaginable kind of tough time from losing his business to raising three strong-willed children. There are four. I'm the fourth. I wasn't strong-willed at all. (laughs) Yeah. To just most recently... Yeah, the onset of cancer in his life. I've watched how he handles that. And I could say, my dad is a man who takes a licking and keeps on ticking. And that has, been, that has been such a godly role model for me. My dad wakes up, this is true, my dad wakes up every morning singing. Every morning singing, singing worship songs to God. And he'll go over to a keyboard and he'll start plunking out the tune and singing, which drives, if I'm ever home at the time, drives the rest of us crazy because Dad never learned how to play the piano, knows like three chords, so everything sounds the same. It sounds like a roller rink, you know, but he just sings his heart out to God, and I've often thought he'll never sell an album on iTunes, but I'll bet you God loves his singing. It's music to God's ears. And so I can look at you this Father's Day, and I could say... I hope when I grow up, I'm like my dad, you know, when it comes to perseverance. And I hope some of you dads are saying, well, I'd like to be a role model like that for my kids. I'd like to be a role model of perseverance. One fourth final directive. When the going gets tough, number four, resist the urge to use profanity. Resist the urge to use profanity. Last verse that we're looking at today, James 5, verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. Now, when James says at the beginning of this verse, do not swear, I do want you to understand that the kind of swearing he's referring to, strictly speaking, is not, not profanity. I mean, this is not a prohibition against using vulgar four-letter words. James doesn't have in mind here the F word or the S word or the H word or the D word. The only four-letter word that James is thinking about here is the O word. Say the O word. Yeah, the the word oath. Do not swear means don't make frivolous oaths. Okay, don't, don't try to convince others that you're telling the truth by adding the words, hey, I swear to God. Or I swear on my grandmother's grave. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I'm telling you the truth. James says you don't need to do that if you're an honest person. Just let your yes be yes and your, and your no be no. You say, well, if, if that's what James is saying here, don't resort to oaths, then why have I called this point resist the urge to use profanity? 
Well, well, I think that profanity falls into the same category as the oath that James is prohibiting here. By the way, a side note, quickly here. I don't think James is against taking oaths in court when, when in a formal way you're asked to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is frivolous. This is, I swear to God, kind of language. And I think, it's very, I think profanity is very, very similar because sometimes in order to give extra punch to what we're saying, sometimes in order to grab people's attention, sometimes to put a sharp edge on a statement or to let others know that we really feel strongly about this, we'll resort to profanity. Just like James is saying, don't resort to oaths to underscore what you're saying. I think James would say, don't resort to profanity to underscore what you're saying. You know, there are, there are occasions when it's enough to say a simple yes or, or a no. You don't need to say damn right or hell no. Just say yes. Say no. I've shared with you before the definition of profanity that I, I came across years ago. This has stuck in my mind ever since. Profanity is the, the attempt of a weak mind to express itself forcefully. Profanity is the attempt of a weak mind to express itself forcefully. And the times when we're tempted to do that, that is when we're going through difficult straits, right? If your boss is overbearing at work, if he's making your life miserable, the tendency is not to say that over-demanding boss. The tendency is to say that effing boss. If, if you're in a lot of a physical pain, you know, the temptation is to say this hurts like hell. You know, I grew up in a home where there was never any swearing, but I had a great uncle who, boy, did he have a potty mouth. And when he'd come by, you know, he'd say stuff. I remember one time he had visited and he'd driven through the cold. It was a winter day and the heater in his car didn't work. And he said, boy, it was cold as hell out there. And I'm a, a little kid and I'm thinking, cold hell? I was totally confused. Yeah. You, you, you drop your cell phone signal in the midst of a very important call and what you, you say, oh, what? Fill in the blank. Not out loud, though. Okay. Here's the trouble with that sort of language. It only makes our problems worse. You know, instead of practicing the directives that we've learned today in our study of, of James, instead of reminding ourselves of Christ's return, now looking to the future, minimizing this present problem because Jesus is returning. He's bringing his presence. He's bringing his reward with him. Instead of refraining from grumbling against others because we know God's in control and God wants the best for me, instead of reflecting on positive role models of perseverance, we just vent. A lot of good venting does. Profanity just makes our problems worse. And besides that, it slimes us. What comes out of our mouths in this regard slimes us. You know, Jesus said as much on one occasion. He was being criticized by the self-righteous religious leaders. They were upset with Jesus because when he, he and his disciples ate a meal, they didn't wash their hands, go through a Jewish ritual ahead of time before eating the food. This was not a hygienic washing of the hands. This was a, a, a ceremonial hand washing. If you didn't do it just right, then you could defile the food that was going into your body. Jesus' response, Matthew 15, verse 11, he says, What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. Listen. But what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. 
See, when profanity comes out of our mouths, it defiles us, slimes us, sullies us. Instead of bringing light into our tough times, it promotes darkness. You know, my, my good friend and the closest ministry partner on staff here, Eric Rogis, uh, loves to play softball. Playing softball last week on one of Christ Community Church's teams. And as I tell you this story, I'm going to ask for our worship uh, teams from each of our campuses to come out on the platform. We're going to sing a worship song about persevering through difficult times in, in just a moment as we collect our offering. But Eric is playing softball last week. He's a very competitive guy, played baseball in high school and in college. So when he hits the ball to the infield, he's determined he's going to beat the throw to first. So the good news is he beats the throw. Bad news is the throw is errant, and it is thrown really, really hard, and it pegs him in the side of the face. And he goes down, bam. And he has the laces of a softball tattooed on the side of his face. Now, I wasn't there, didn't see it. I heard Eric describe it. I heard other people who were there describe it. It wasn't pretty. But even though I wasn't there, I can guarantee you what came out of his mouth on that occasion. And the reason I know it is because I've heard Eric say this time and again when we've been in tough times. On occasions when salty words have come out of my mouth, here's what Eric says. Crumb buckets. I don't even know what crumb buckets means. And the first few times I heard it, I thought, that's kind of wimpy for a big burly guy like Eric to use crumb buckets, really? Like, that's the best you can do? But, you know, knowing what I know about Eric's past, knowing that when he came to Christ, there was this tremendous change in his life, that before Jesus he was foul-mouthed, I think crumb buckets is pretty good. Maybe we all ought to start saying crumb buckets, okay? What do you do when the going gets tough? Here, here's what you do. Number one, you re- remind yourself of Christ's return. You say, in the short term, this is going to be difficult, but I got my eye on the horizon. Jesus is coming back. I'm going to live in his presence forever. He's bringing with him a reward if I'll weather this in a God-honoring way. You refrain from grumbling against others. In, instead of turning on them, You turn to God and you remind yourself you're in control and you want what's best for me. You reflect, number three, on positive role models of perseverance. You look around for a friend, a godly person who's gone through the same thing and you go to school on them and you resist the urge to use profanity. You say crumb buckets instead. 